0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food. We'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Well, I want to ask you this morning, what's the importance of a meal? I know it's 11.32 and lunch is bearing down on us. So some of you may be thinking about food a little bit more so than others at this moment. I'll encourage and spur that on just a little bit. But what's the importance of a meal? When I think about meals, I think about the best meals I've ever had. I mean, the absolute greatest meals I've ever had. And they all, they all hold something in common for me. Let me just share with you my, my top three meals of all time. Number one, the flat iron steak that I had in Estes Park, Colorado. Best steak I've ever had in my life. Most incredible. I can see it. I can taste it even right now. Incredible. Had that meal with my wife, Stephanie. It was great. We had a date night there. Second meal, number two, I don't remember exactly what I ate, so that may just kind of sum it up in some ways or another. I just remember everything I ate was incredible. It was so good. In fact, it was one of my, it's my top, it's in my top three meals of all time. But it was a lunch meal at uh, just this outdoor uh, restaurant sitting on this little patio in this piazza in Amalfi, Italy, uh, on a glorious, sunshiny spring day. And that, that meal, too, was, was with Stephanie uh, there. Excellent. Everything was good. I just don't remember what I ate, but I'm sure it was good. I even scrolled back into Instagram. See, did I take a picture of that plate? I didn't. Um, but the meal was incredible. The third meal, I did get a picture of that plate, and it turns out to be the greatest burger I've ever eaten in my entire life. It's not In-N-Out, by the way, but this is, this is so good, so good. It, it was at a place called Graham & Dunn in Kansas City, Missouri, the plaza, we could just bring up, um, yeah, the Instagram picture there. That burger was, it changed my life. I've never had a burger as good as that. You could see there's like bacon, like thick cut slabs of bacon on it, the cheese, every, that was just, an, I'm hungry now. Who, let's, amen, let's go. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's have lunch. Um, a wonderful brunch burger uh, at that place in Kansas City. And Stephanie was, was at that meal uh, as well. Now, I found it interesting that, that as I got to thinking about it, I, I know I've had thousands upon thousands of meals with Stephanie. Like that, those aren't the only three meals that I've had with her. But those, those meals, something about them made them the greatest of, of my life. Certainly the food was important. I mean, the food and the quality and the excellence of the food. You can take down the burger uh, picture now. Everybody's just like zoned out on that. And, um We'll get there. Certainly, the, the food is important. But, but these meals were marked by something so much more than just the food itself. As I, as I mentioned, the common thing that existed between all three of those meals were they were with Stephanie, my wife. I remembered those meals because of not just the taste, but the presence of her with me. It makes me wonder, do, do you ever think about what it would be like if you could have a meal? Would Jesus, would you remember it? Would it be memorable? Would it stick in your life and stick in in your mind? Maybe the question would be better asked this way. Do you think Jesus would ever have a meal with you? Who who would Jesus, if he were to come back today, who who would he sit down and eat with? Who Who would he go to their home and have dinner with? Who would he invite out for takeout? Who would he spend time with? And maybe the question is, who does Jesus want me and you to have meals with? Who who should we, if we're to be like Jesus, who should we be having meals with? Angela, thank you for reading uh, Luke chapter 5 this morning. We're starting a new series today, and we're going to be in Luke's gospel for the next five Sundays leading up to Easter Sunday. And In Luke's gospel, we find Jesus was at the table a whole lot. He was there eating and drinking all the time. In in fact, three statements about in the Bible about Jesus, the Son of Man, came. These are statements that Jesus himself said about himself. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or in Luke 19, chapter 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. One other place, there's three places in the Scripture where it says the Son of Man came. The third place, Luke 7, says the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. On this book that we're encouraging going to pick up and read, uh, Meals with Jesus by Tim Chester, uh, and our life groups are going to be going through starting this week, so if you're not connected with a life group, now's a great time to get into that uh, stream, get with a life group, see Pastor Nathan after the service. Uh, Tim Chester says this, The first two, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Those first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to seek and to save the lost. But the third statement, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, that's a statement of method. How did Jesus come and live and exist here in this world? He came eating and drinking. So, so what happened? What happens at meals with Jesus? It's way more than just food. And it's again worth asking who does Jesus eat with? Who would Jesus eat with even today? And again, I'll turn that question to us who does Jesus want you and me to eat with? I want to explore here in Luke 5, just this movement of Jesus in the way in which his meals are intentional. And the intentionality of his meals shape a reality for us as followers of Jesus about how our meals are to be intentional as well. So here let's just work through this together. First of all, we find that the, the reality of Jesus's strategy of mission, his intentionality is found in that Jesus finds sinners. That Jesus is pursuing and seeking And finding sinners. Now, in this passage here in Luke chapter 5, if we were to look at just the passage right ahead of it, just to set the, the setting, where's Jesus at? What he's doing? Jesus has been teaching, he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. And in chapter five, verse 17, it says, well, on one of those days he was teaching and Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. Who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And so Jesus is having a Bible study with the religious leaders. He is doing like some, some religious leader coaching and some religious leader training. He is speaking to the ones who know the scripture, the, the deepest, the best, the most fullest. These guys are versed in the Bible. You, you may say it this way, Jesus is in church, having church with the religious leaders, the pastors, the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the religious elite of that day in society. And the scripture says that the Spirit of God was with him to heal. So as he's teaching about the kingdom of God, he's teaching the the teachers, and he's working through the scriptures with them, Uh, Luke says that that a man showed up who was paralyzed. Now, he didn't walk that way because he was paralyzed, but his friends brought him to Jesus. They were so concerned about this man's well-being and his physical care that his buddies brought them to Jesus. And they find the, the place is packed out. Wherever Jesus is teaching, it's so full, nobody can get in there. And so his friends do a radical thing. They climb up on the roof. They clear a hole. They drop their buddy down. Down, right in the middle of the room where Jesus is teaching and they're like, hey, Jesus, fix our friend. Help him, heal him. Jesus says to the man there lying on his mat who cannot walk, son, your sins are forgiven. That astounds everybody because they are like, wait, what? Only God can forgive sins and you now, Jesus, by saying that are in some way or another, you are claiming to be God, but can you really do that? And so the religious leaders, are all filled with sort sorts of doubts and skepticism and frustration. Like, he can't say that. And so Jesus turns to them and he says, well, let me show you something. He said, what's harder to do here? Is it harder for me to say to this guy, get up, take your mat and walk? Or is it harder for me to say your sins are forgiven? It's, it's, it's obvious here. It's, it's, impossible for me to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, and for us to verify that in any way tangibly here in the world. But it's totally possible for someone to say, get up to a paralyzed person, get up and walk, and to validate whether that's true or not. Jesus heals the man. He jumps up and he walks out the room. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, by doing that, demonstrates his power to forgive sins because he's done the visibly harder thing in healing the man and making him rise. And so Luke's gospel says, And amazement seized them all. And they had glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. That's what Jesus has been doing. Now we come to our text here in verse 27. It says, after this, after Jesus has been teaching with the Pharisees, been leading them, after, he, after this, it says he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, a couple of things that we should identify here. First of all, Jesus leaves the religious crowd. He calls what I, he leaves what I'll call the, the worship service. He escapes the room with all the Pharisees, and he goes out, and he sees a tax collector named Levi. Now, now maybe when we read this, we don't cringe in the way the first century readers would, but, but I still think we get a little cringy at this, at this moment in the text. We see tax collectors like IRS agents, and we're like, whoa, uh. Not, not the best people in the world, not our favorite folks. Like Nobody really appreciates the job of a tax collector. And by the way, if you work for the IRS here this morning, uh, we do love you. Um, we're not big fans of what you do, especially this time of the year, but, but we're glad that you're here. In the first century, though, the tax collectors, they didn't even get that kind of like welcome or appreciation at all. They were the worst possible people. Let me give you a few reasons why. The tax collectors worked for the occupying enemies of Israel, the the Romans. They worked for the Roman uh, Empire. And by their very vocation, they were traitors to the Jewish people. And therefore, they were traitors to God as well. When you went into the employment of Rome, you abandoned God and his people. That's how they saw it. So you were hated just in and by that because you had sold out your, your countrymen. You had sold out your nation. You had sold out your God. As a tax collector, you were, you were working against God in that way. Not only that, they were extortionists. The tax collectors, think of, think of these guys as the collectors for the mob. You know, they were going around collecting for mob bosses. So the, Rome, the Romans would say, okay, listen, everybody's got to pay 5% taxes, 5%. And the tax collectors knew, like, hey, we need to make a little money off this. Like, we've got to be profitable some way. So instead of just, like, bumping it up, like, 1% or 2%, points, the, the, the tax collectors would line their pockets with lucrative wealth off of the backs of these people. They would jack up the rate 15%, 25%. They would take all that they could get. There were no regulations. The Romans didn't care. They were like, hey, we just need our 5%. You get whatever you can get out of these folks. That's your job. Have fun with that. So they were thieves in that way and hated for it. You didn't want to go to the tax booth because you knew they were going to take and take and take. Thirdly, they were wealthy. Unusually wealthy, obviously, because they robbed everybody. They stole from the poor, they lined their pockets, they supported Rome. And so their wealth increases and everybody else's wealth diminishes. And you can imagine the economic disparity in and of itself there with these tax collectors. These are not your friends. You hate them with a passion. You want to see them die. Now notice here, Jesus leaves the religious people. He steps out of the room with the pious, practicing Bible knowers, the religious folks of his day. He steps out of the room there and he goes and he, notice the term here, he sees a tax collector. And that's not like to see and then look down and be like, oh, I hope he didn't see me. I didn't see him. I don't acknowledge that he even exists. Luke is intentional here. Jesus is looking for this guy. He's pursuing him. For Jesus' pursuit and purpose are intended here. And Jesus goes to him and he speaks to him. What Jesus says is astounding in and of itself. He says, come, follow me. Jesus calls him to himself. What Jesus is doing here is unheard of as well. It's unheard of in the ancient world. Rabbis in the first century, they would choose the highest potential, most zealous, most pious religious students to have in their schools. If you were a rabbi collecting disciples to walk with you, you wanted them to be the cream of the crop in religious studies because it would raise your reputation as well. Your, pedigree, your reputation was staked on the pedigree of the students that you invited in to be your disciples as well. So for Jesus here to call a tax collector into his school of discipleship, he was basically taking on and inviting the worst kind of person into his inner circle. Jesus wasn't lifting up his reputation as a rabbi in that world. He was squandering it in front of everybody. Tax collector? You're bringing that guy in? Like, if there was a religious studies ACT that they had to take before they got into rabbinical schools, Levi would have scored a negative score. He wouldn't even been given entrance to take the test. But Jesus brings him in. It's surprising and upsetting to the religious order of things. And Levi's response is tremendous. Look with me at verse 28. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. The business day is over. The vocation of tax collector, like for Levi, he closes the books. He resigns his post. He leaves it all behind, and he gets up, and he follows Jesus. His departure and following Jesus is a display of repentance and a turning of his life. Levi is a new man because Jesus called him. Everything is different because Jesus has called him to himself. Now now let me focus here on Jesus in making this point. Jesus is finding sinners. He's pursuing sinners. And he's calling them to himself. Who is Jesus' mission aimed at? Sinners. His mission is aimed at sinners. This may be a way, a crude way in some ways of illustrating it, but consider how businesses sell products today. Many in marketing and sales will talk about the target audience that they're, they're reaching, who they're trying to reach or what demographics they are focusing on to sell their products. Think about the Super Bowl halftime show this year. That was an act of aggressive advertising. Let me say this. If you were bothered by the music styles and the artists at the Super Bowl halftime show for you this year, let me just tell you, That, relax, it's okay. That Super Bowl halftime show, it wasn't for you. You're you're not the target audience. The Super Bowl itself, with all the advertising around it, was trying to target their advertisements toward Gen X adults who grew up in the late 80s and the 90s and would resonate with the artist and the music that was there because that's, that's frankly who we grew up with. That's who we listened to. And even the ads had a bunch of 80s and 90s nostalgia around it to speak to us and to say, hey, this, this product is for you. So, so that show wasn't, and I'll quote somebody, everything that's wrong with America – It was just a targeted sales pitch to a very specific demographic of Americans, my generation. And I'm sorry if you didn't like the music. It's okay. But there was focus there. Jesus himself had a target audience. Sinners. Just a broad category. That's his target audience. That's his mission. Sinners. That's who he's after and pursuing and looking to reach out to. Not the religious folks. He leaves them. Not the self-righteous. He walks out of that room, but he goes to find the worst. Jesus goes for the lowest, the outcast, the socially immoral, the corrupt, the rejected, and the hated. Again, let me make the point Jesus' mission is to sinners. And that should be our mission as well. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to take his life, his light, his love to sinners, to the world, to those who are far from Jesus. You share in the mission of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, and the target is to sinners. So think about that for a second. Let me be pointed here. Who are and where are the sinners in your life? Where are the relationships? Do you have relationships with those who are far from God? Do you, like Jesus, seek out sinners? Pursue them. Go and find them. Put your life in the space of their life. Do you spend time and seek seek to save, Jesus saving, the sinners, the lost in your world? Jesus finds sinners. That's where his intentionality starts. His target audience, sinners, very broad. He's coming for those who are desperately broken and need the worst. But notice here, secondly, Jesus' intentionality in his method. What does he do? How does he enact this mission? Secondly, Jesus feasts with sinners. So, not only does Jesus find sinners, but now he's doing something really radical. He's feasting with the sinners. That's revealed next in the story. Here's what happens in verse 29. We go back to Levi. Now, Levi made him, made Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Levi has a new life, he has a new master. Jesus has called him, follow me. And Levi's like, yes, I'm done with this tax collecting. I'm moving forward. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm walking with him. And so what does Levi do? What's his first step of faith and obedience? He throws a party. Levi said, hey, we're having people over. We're getting the the best food out. We're going to have a great time. Levi made Jesus a great feast, a lavish reception. And the the Greek word here, this for great feast here, is the intention of like Jesus is the guest of honor, And what what Levi wants to do is make sure all his friends meet Jesus. He wants his friends to get around Jesus. So think about this party. Lots of food, lots of drink, lots of celebrating. And I want you to really think about this kind of feast. A man who has a reputation as a wealthy thief and a traitor, and he throws a party. What kind of party is it going to be? Well, there's going to be a lot of food, gluttony, excess, drinking. And who's at the party? Who's the guest of honor at it? Jesus. Jesus doesn't back off and say, oh, Levi, Levi, you haven't learned how to do Christian parties yet, right? Only cake and you know, red fruit punch. That's all we have at Christian parties. <laughs> Levi doesn't, Jesus doesn't back away and say, wait until you get the invitation correct and you get it matched up. Jesus shows up at the party. He's there. He's not offended by it. He's not worried about it. In Mark's gospel, the parallel passage here, Mark says that as Levi reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus isn't sitting in the corner where all this busyness of the party is going on, going, Oh, these sinners. Oh, they're drinking that stuff again. Oh, evil people. Don't dance. That's bad. It says that they were reclining at table with Jesus. Jesus was right there in the midst with them, shoulder to shoulder, clinking glasses, eating great food, having conversation. He is in the midst of that party. He's there. It's a meal with sinners. Now, here's why that's significant. One Jewish scholar writing about about the practice of rabbis, he says this, rabbis would have been very wary of regular association with persons of immoral life men of proved dishonesty, or followers of suspected and degrading occupations, i.e. tax collectors, these rabbis would have been wary of them at all times, but especially at meals. Especially at a meal. UCLA religious professor Scott Barchi reports, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. When Jesus goes to a party with Levi and his sinner friends, he is telling them the Messiah is for you. The kingdom of God is for you. God's not gonna hold you at arm's length. He's not gonna stand back in the corner and judge you until you get things figured out and all right. He is here in your midst with love for you. I think about this like I think about the high school cafeteria, right? You know what this is like in high school. The cool kids sit over there. The jocks sit over there. The cheerleaders are next to the jocks. The, the musicians and the art kids, like they're in the corner over there. The nerds, they, they got to find a different place in the building because they can't be around anybody else. Meals were demonstrations, even in our culture in some ways, of inclusion and exclusion. And here Jesus, by showing up at this party, by showing up at meals with sinners, he is saying, the kingdom of God is for you. I, I'm here for you. He's turning the social structures upside down. Someone has said Jesus is the consummate party animal. But it's not so much about the food or the party as much as it is who Jesus is having a meal with sinners. He's not eating and partying with the religious and the self righteous exclusively, he's known as a friend of sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Well, think about it. who do you invite to your parties? Who, who do you invite into your life? Who do you invite to your celebrations? Who invites you into their parties? Do you say you're welcome here? Are you like Levi and say, "Hey, I've my life's been changed. I've, I've met Jesus. I'm following Him, and I want all my sinner buddies to know Him too." Whoa. Jesus is associating, displaying friendship, intimacy, and affection with sinners. Do you share your life with the sinners? Are you invited to their parties? Many of us think of Christianity as some sort of fortress mentality. We come to Christ, we get saved, and then we like got to barricade ourselves against the world. The culture is so evil that we've got to make sure that that evil doesn't touch us or associate with us lest we get contaminated with that evil as well. And so we we practice a Christianity that separates ourselves from the world rather than being in the world and not of it. Maybe you've heard of the doctrine of separation, which many in independent fundamentalist churches or Baptist churches grew up with and, and those churches teach. The doctrine of separation basically says that Christians should not associate, participate, or relate with the world or with anybody else, including Christians, that do associate or participate with the world. The way I paraphrase the doctrine of separation is we don't drink, we don't smoke, and we don't dance. And we don't hang out with anybody who does, period. Maybe that's where you've been, where you come from. And so what happens is the doctrine of separation creates Christian subcultures, little pockets of Christian things that look like cultures of the world in some ways, but are sure to keep non-Christians out, like there's us and them. So we have Christian gyms, we have Christian coffee shops, we have Christian restaurants, we have Christian softball leagues, we have Christian yoga, Christian theme parks, Christian clothing, Christian essential oils, all the things that the world already has just for Christians, just for Christians, I'm hungry, so I got to have the jokes in here today. Somebody asked me recently here about, hey, pastor, we should start a church softball league. Let's just get all the other churches in our community together and have a softball league together. It'd be great. It'll be great. And I told them, very lovingly, I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. Go play in the league that's already here in our community. Hang out with the non-Christians and the sinners. I'm convinced if Jesus were here today, he would not play in anybody, anybody's church softball league. He'd be in the community beer league. And he'd be doing great. Here's my encouragement for us. Share life and meals with unbelievers. Frequently, regularly, faithfully. Have meals with people who don't know Jesus. Jesus feasted with the sinners. He showed up at their parties. Do you? Do you hang out with them? And this all leads to, and it builds to the reality of the third thing, that Jesus fulfills his mission at the table. Where is Jesus' mission lived out and fulfilled? At a table, all the time. By finding sinners and feasting with sinners, we see Jesus' mission strategy is around with and at a table. And that again, is cult- countercultural to his day. The meals were places of inclusion. Who's in? Who belongs? You get to eat, you're in. You're, you're out, locked out of the room. You're not welcome here. So the religious leaders and the elite, they're frustrated. Look with me at verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, which again is just a practice of legalistic people. Instead of going right to the person they have an issue with, they go and find the others and make gossip about it and stir up dissension. Like These guys, they're just pros at this. They go to his disciples and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I have to say it with that jeer in my voice because that's how they were. You're hanging out with the wrong people. What's wrong with you? Don't even talk to Jesus about it. Jesus, he points out the whole reason. He hears this, he answers them back. They're saying, why give them this friendship? Why give this inclusion to them? The kingdom of God is only for people who clean themselves up and are righteous and you're hanging out with the worst people. Jesus turns it around. He answers this through a metaphor in verse 31. Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. If you're physically healthy, you don't need a doctor to go in and do invasive surgery on you. Period. That would be crazy. Nonsensical. That's Jesus' point. The healthy don't need treatment and care of a doctor. They're fine. But it's the sick. They need the treatment and care of a doctor. Jesus is the great physician for our sin-sick souls. So he could say his mission is this in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous... But sinners to repentance. Now now we have to ask a question. Jesus says, I'm not here to call the righteous. We have to ask a question who are the righteous? Do you know who the Bible says are the righteous? Big goose egg. No one. Not a one of us. But you know what? We don't see it that way. We look at ourselves and we look at others around us who think like us, behave like us, like that, and we go, you know what? We are the righteous. We got it together. We figured it out. We're all clean. Thank you very much. Jesus should just hang out with us. Jesus says, "No, I came to this earth to call sinners. To call the righteous or not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance." Who needs to repent? Unrighteous people, like you and me, and every one of us. We need repentance. And Jesus is the one who calls us to repentance. Jesus says, I've come for the folks that know their hearts are full of sin and they are experiencing the cancer of sin in their hearts and they need a doctor. Jesus says, I've come for the spiritually bankrupt who need a savior. Jesus says, I've come for the lost and the destitute who can't find their way. Jesus says, I've come for the spiritually weak and impoverished who have no strength of their own. Jesus says, I've come for those in bondage to break their chains, and to bring them into liberty and freedom. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous. If you think yourself righteous, Jesus isn't for you. But if you know you're a sinner and you know your deep heart cancer, Jesus is your only help, and he calls you. His mission is sinners. His strategy is to get around a table with sinners, to be close, near, share life, share bread and wine with sinners because he is the only way, the truth, and the life. Jesus loves sinners so much that he gave himself for them on the cross. He died for sinners and calls sinners to repentance. Like Levi, come, follow me. That's his call. Will we see our need? shut the books on our wayward ways, get up and follow him? And what does this mean for us? It means that following Jesus means feasting with sinners. The call for Christians, for followers of Jesus, our step of faith and obedience is to emulate and follow his model here. How is the world going to see a Savior who feasts with sinners except through a people of God who encountered that Savior sent to be with sinners? We need to see Jesus came for sinners, that we're those and recognize his grace and mercy and humility towards us. We need to see how Jesus enacted his mission for sinners as a model for us. He ate with, shared life and tables with sinners. The methodology is the same for us. It's absolutely the same. I know that sometimes when we talk about evangelism and mission, living to share the gospel, that can feel high intensity that that can seem very very stressful. You can go, "Oh, wait, I'm not a Christian professional. I don't even know if I speak good. What if I get it wrong? What if I say something that's not like biblically sound? Like, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to ruin it." And so we just feel all nervous about sharing our faith with non-Christians. Let me let me just de-stress the moment for you. Let me let me just point you to Jesus and how Jesus did it. You know what he did? He showed up at the parties. He had meals with sinners. He put himself in organic, natural, low threshold, everyday life situations with those who were lost, and he loved them. And opportunities to talk about who he was came up. Jesus and his disciples ministered and shared about the kingdom of God. And he, that's, that's the mission program for you and me: have meals with sinners. Simple application. Really low-hanging, simple ministry method. Don't isolate, don't separate. Make friends with sinners, even around the table. So I want you to think about it. this is an application for us and for you over the next four weeks. We have four more Sundays up to Easter Sunday. And I want to encourage you to identify who are the sinners in your life. I know they're there. You know they're there too. But do you really know, do you see them like Jesus saw Levi? Who are those sinners? Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, could be a family member, could, it could be somebody that you, you play in a softball league with or something like that, that's great. Who are those people that are far from God and don't know Jesus in your life? Just identify them. And then over the next four weeks, have meals with them. Again, don't make it weird. Don't think that you have to like, okay, by the time after the appetizers come out, then I've got to break open the Bible and like, let's have a little Bible study or present the four spiritual laws to them. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. Eat good food. Talk about the things that matter to you. Get to know them. There's 21 meals on average, 21 meals that we would have in the course of a week. Pick a coworker that doesn't know Jesus, a friend, a friend, somebody else, somebody you know, and have lunch, have dinner, have a meal with them. one meal out of 21 over the next four weeks. So four meals over the next four weeks with them. Get takeout. Watch the University of Michigan storm and win the national, uh, NCAA national tournament together. There's one meal a week with sinners. Get people in your life group together and say, hey, let's just invite a friend together. We'll, we'll all go to Chili's. and It's a terrible place. Let's go to Barrio and have a meal together connect with those lost people. Then as we get closer to Easter Sunday, we're going to have a big pancake breakfast on Saturday morning. We're having a pancake breakfast so you can invite your sinner friends to a party with us. That's the only reason we're doing it. Just so that like these sinner people they, that you know, they can see like, "Wait, you go to this church. You're here around and these other people, they're kind of normal, some of them are weird, but pastor especially, but 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 we can hang out together." We can get to know one another. It's, it's just simple. And then you can say, hey, come back with me on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday. It's the biggest day of our church year. We celebrate what Jesus did. Just come back. I'm not asking you to learn the evangelistic presentation. I'm, I'm asking you to learn a life that Jesus lived. Just follow him. Have meals with sinners. And Pray. Pray for God to save these sinners as we have these meals with them over the next four weeks. And hopefully it'll turn into just a lifestyle. It's just something you do every week with lost people, maybe even more frequently, hopefully more frequently, you just immerse your life in the lives of those who are far from God. And I know God will do great things in that. I know he'll save sinners. I want to tell you about a friend uh, in Wichita, Kansas that, that Stephanie and I met. We just started showing up at people's houses, or in people's in na- our neighborhood uh, group when we moved there. Our our neighborhood had a HOA sort of thing, a neighborhood a society, and so we started showing up at that. And I noticed we were relatively new, but I noticed there were some other new people in the community. And one of those uh, one of those people was a woman named Eleanor. Eleanor and her husband had moved from France to uh, Wichita. For the uh, uh, auto, or, I'm sorry, for the airline industry, a uh, big aircraft engineer, and uh, she and her husband were living there, and so they lived just up the street from us, just a few houses down, and we recognized like they don't know anybody, we hardly know anybody, and so let's just get together with them, and so Stephanie made an invitation uh, to Eleanor, brought her over to our house, so we made French press coffee and and uh, pastries, and we just started a friendship, just hanging out with them, having having coffee every so often with them and meals. We invited them over for dinner on a couple of occasions and just got to know them. Well, after we had moved from Kansas, we lost touch with Eleanor and her husband. Um, But a few years ago, like this is two years ago, we're still living here. Eleanor finds us, reaches out to us uh, through social media. Uh, She had moved back to France. Her and her husband had separated and divorced, and she had moved back to France. But she said to us, I've met Jesus, and my life has been changed. And I want you to know that because it started with you just caring for us and loving us. We had, I think, in all that time, I know we talked once or twice about the gospel and church. But it was just the seed that was planted. And God carried it along. And she's walking with Christ now and even being a missionary in her community in France because it started with a meal, French press coffee. Guys, you can do this. We can do this by the power of God, following Jesus, feasting with sinners. That's who he'd eat with. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.